Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Another price to be paid in terms of human life, for lawlessness at the border, for mindless sanctuary city, county, state policies. Yesterday at the um, Pilsen Migrant Shelter, the largest one in the city, how many people are in there? 800, 2,000? 2, Nobody seems to know. It was the last I heard. I don't know. Uh, yesterday, a five-year-old boy died. Now, this I guess this happened actually Sunday. It's reported yesterday. five-year-old boy died. Five more people, including four children, hospitalized after becoming ill at an overcrowded migrant shelter in Pilsen that's been the subject of repeated complaints about unsanitary conditions. Welcoming city, the price of being a welcoming city, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line, born by migrants too, it turns out. I mean, did you hear what Mayor Johnson said? Blaming Texas governor, at first, you know, he left a release, we're obviously deeply sorry and hurt by the loss. Before placing the blame on Governor Abbott, who's been, quote, busing migrants to Chicago and other liberal cities for the past 15 months, they're just dropping off people anywhere. Do you understand how raggedy and how evil that is? And then you want to hold us accountable for something that's happening down at the border. It's sickening, quote, unquote, the mayor. Well, of course. Of course he's going to blame Governor Abbott because what's he going to do except blame on himself? Uh, was he going to do blame the Chicago Democrat socialist power structure that's advanced these policies uh, with some Republican help? Thank you, Bruce Rauner, statewide to scale it statewide. Mm-hmm. But what's he going to do? You've had uh, this is what you wanted. You got it. You made no preparations for it. You have no managerial capacity to deal with making preparations in real time. And this is the result. You know, all the grand visions with these base camps that were going to be built and uh, you're going to have a play area here for the kids and you're going to have on-site medical support and so on and so forth. And instead, what happens is something that I'm sure Michelle Obama would have a hashtag campaign on if she were still paying attention to Chicago, um, not because she cared, but because it was politically necessary to do so. Hashtag campaign children in cages. How about hash campaign uh, children in unsanitary uh, makeshift migrant camps? And isn't, really, that what the, isn't that what the facility in Pilsen is, apparently? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, and here's one migrant. There's a lot of kids at this facility. It's six stories high. I thought it was one story, but part of it is just a one-story structure, and then this, there's six stories. But there's a lot of kids there, and there's a lot of kids who are unvaccinated for certain things that we have to get vaccinated for in order to go to school, and the moms are getting a little 
anxious. There was a chickenpox outbreak. There was a flu outbreak. Children have scabies. There are bed bugs. Anything you can imagine is in that shelter. Mm, and what does uh, Mayor Johnson have to say? At every single site throughout the city of Chicago, we provide on-site medical care. In fact, the county government has just put forth more dollars for more health care. But I want you to hear me good. I hear you good. They're showing up sick. Do you hear me? They're showing up sick. And they're showing up because you're letting them in the country, you and other Democratic mayors. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Sanctuary City designation, BLM Brandon. Was there a rider in there that said uh, we're not a welcoming city if you're sick? I, I don't recall that. I don't recall the uh, illness exception. Does anybody else? Did you have to stipulate that you were healthy? For the open borders crowd? For the defund ICE crowd? I never heard that. I'm hearing it now from him because he's trying to blame shift, but I never heard that previously. And, um, you know, again, let's take uh, your premises at face value, BLM, Brandon. It's all the fault of what's happening at the border. It's all Governor Abbott's fault. Now, the other border state governors, Katie Hobbs um, and um, uh, the New Mexico governor, um, they're Democrats, so it's not their fault what's happening at the border. Okay, sure. Katie Hobbs, by the way, scrambling in the National Guard now in Arizona. She can't wait any longer. Uh, So so it's it's all Abbott's fault. It's just all Greg Abbott's fault. Okay. But you're a welcoming city. We're a welcoming city. Uh, This is a policy you support. Um, You're making provisions or trying to for low these many weeks as low these many busloads of migrants made their way north to Chicago. And you're saying that you have on-site medical staff because, of course, um, no one can be illegal, just your language, because you care for these people. Because this is a reflection of our humanity and you have a facility in Pilsen, the largest migrant uh, camp that you've set up. And it is in this sort of condition as described by the migrants themselves. And with respect and and with respect to the five year old boy who died and the other people got sick. I mean, there's the the news coverage suggests that there was argument about whether or not to call an ambulance for the five year old boy who died. Well, yeah, that's what another lady told uh, Michelle Gallardo that. The kid had a seizure and a fever the day before, a seizure, and they wouldn't call an ambulance. And that another kid, and then finally when he passed out, they sent an ambulance. And the one-year-old girl who was sent by ambulance, that mother told her that she had a fever, but the fever had to hit a certain mark in order for them to call medical help. Like it couldn't be 101; it had to be 102 or higher in order. Well, whatever the detail, whatever the details are, there's uh, some. We, we need some more BLM brand explaining. Well, uh, if you want to sit through this, this is we won't play the whole thing. But there's a new reporter at Channel Five. He's an investigative reporter, Bennett Haberly, and he 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 had the information where Mayor Johnson didn't. So we there's been nurses, this traveling group of nurses at the police stations, uh, taking care of the migrants every day. Except and, they're not at the police station. Right, anymore. and they won't let them in the shelters, but BLM didn't know that. Uh oh. Another ambulance run Monday to the Halstead shelter, where more than 2,000 migrants are staying. Over the weekend, a five year old boy was found unresponsive here and later died. 
Chicago Fire confirms there have been several calls for sick children at this shelter. But we have lots and lots of produce. Which the news of the child's death was not surprising for Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, a physician and medical volunteer who also operates the Pilsen Food Pantry. She told us migrants have shown up here asking for food, clothing, and medicine. I expected there to be some atrocity in the building and that that would finally give us the leverage. Dr. Figueroa tells us a medical student volunteer was allowed to visit the shelter Monday after previous requests have been ignored. It shouldn't take people dying for you to do something, for you to ask for help. Help that's readily available. And people are offering to help. Speaking at a city event, Mayor Brandon Johnson said he was deeply sorry and hurt about the child's death, but defended the city's efforts. They're showing up sick. Do you hear me? They're showing up sick. The issue is not just how we respond in the city of Chicago. There have been a number of ambulances. We attempted to ask the mayor about what the volunteers told us. It's led people to tell us that the medical care being provided at this site is inadequate. Can you respond to that criticism? So there are volunteers that want to provide medical assistance? That's right. And they're saying that they've repeatedly... Are, are these, hold on a second. Are these medically trained volunteers? Yes. Okay, I'm not aware of any medical volunteers that want to go into sites to provide medical care. I'm not aware of that. For months, volunteers with the Migrant Mobile Health Team, made up of medical student volunteers, have provided assessments and coordinated medical care for migrants at Chicago police stations. Their organization even spoke before city council in October, detailing the hurdles they say they've encountered. NBC5 Investigates obtained this text message from November 25th between a medical volunteer and the city's contractor, favored healthcare staffing. In it, the volunteer asked if they'll be moved to triage at the shelters once the police stations are cleared. The response, at this time, we don't believe we will need help in the shelters. Turns out they need help in the shelters, huh? I wonder if um, BLM Brandon has visited the Pilsen shelter. Has he been there? They don't let people in. They don't let reporters in. I, I, or anybody. He's the mayor. I know. Well, I has has he, he been go. there? Does he know what the conditions are? He clearly do, it doesn't seem like he does. He doesn't know what the conditions are because he doesn't know that there have been volunteer medical uh, medical students volunteering to provide health care on site. If he had visited, he probably would know that, wouldn't he? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment. Something else struck me about what that uh, that woman advocate you know advocate who runs a nonprofit or whatever yeah, she Dr. is in Pilsen, mm-hmm. um that uh, no the came in looking for food looking for blankets. So uh, let me see something where uh, the city from the block club report we shared with you. Uh, the other day, the city is paying two and three X market rate for rents in West Loop buildings for the shelters that have been set up there. And uh, so, you know, they're, they're expending tens of millions of dollars. We need include the state hundreds of millions of dollars. And you can't provide food and right. blankets and so forth. See, it's a funny thing because uh, – Conservatives like uh, me are the ones described as heartless when it comes to uh, these people who have made their way into this country because of our terrible public policies. Um, but I- I'm not uh, the one failing to live up to my commitments that are attendant to my policy choices. 
all of those sentimental barbarians throughout Chicagoland, but particularly in positions of power, and, and I say Chicagoland because, of course, it extends into the suburbs and the collar counties. The mentality does. The support for these policies does. Now, these deaths, that sickness, whether they came with it or not, is on you. Yep. Joe in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, two quick things. You know that the parents of this child is, is going to sue and make money off this. Uh, it's a bad thing that the kid died, but I bet you they're going to get some lawyer to sue the city and make money. The oh, second yeah. thing, free health care, free health care. I'm on this Obamacare thing. I'm paying $24,000 a year for a premium. Plus, I got a $20,000 deductible. I got to take my daughter, take off work today, take my daughter to the doctor because she's sick. Took, it took an hour to get an appointment, and I got to pay money for this. Why don't I just say that she's from Guatemala and just stop at the city center and get it done for free? This is utterly ridiculous. I pay taxes, and I got to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for no health care, and these people get it for free, and they snuck in the country? This BS has got to stop. Thanks for the call, Joe. The only thing that's worse than your situation with Obamacare is being totally left to the devices of the state. You're right that uh, the whole point of the left is that citizens and non-citizens are indistinguishable in terms of benefits and uh, apparently responsibilities. I get it. In fact, in some respects, um, those who are not citizens and who are here illegally are treated better than citizens. But the last thing you want to do is be completely beholden to the state. Even if you're getting uh, squeezed, it's still better than being in the position of these migrants at the um, mercy of BLM Brandon's management expertise. Think about that. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM 560. This is owners. Now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Uh, Just a little bit more on the uh, chaos that has ensued under the big guy and all these open borders, defund ICE, sanctuary city, county, state politicians around the country, particular major metro areas. And um, the um, exposure they have now for being the barbarians that they are. Yes, incompetent and hypocritical and all of those things. Barbarians, to me, is the top line. The barbarians in Oak Park uh, who are 
sending the migrants away, Martha's Vineyard style. The barbarians in Chicago trying to blame shift, like BLM Brandon we were just discussing, trying to blame shift uh, the responsibility for the death, for the crime, for the mayhem, for the uh, misdirection of taxpayer dollars on border state governors, well, at least the Republican ones. And may I add something? Shame on them for taking our children's public places away. We have five, seven park districts that our kids don't have access to, and we pay in our property taxes to use those facilities, and we're never getting them back. This is what happens when you make public policy from an emotional place where you are so convinced of your own moral rectitude, of the feelings that you're feeling, that you ignore the logic, you don't consider the consequences, and then you project onto others your failures when those consequences are ultimately visited upon you and everyone else. And it's not stopping. It's just throwing off more consequences. Bill Malugan, Fox News, uh, ambulating back and forth along the 1,800 miles of our southern border. We find him in Eagle Pass now because there's problems again at Eagle Pass. And here's another under-discussed consequence of the lawlessness at the border. Take a live look at our Fox News drone over in Eagle Pass. They have had another mass illegal crossing out there. You can see hundreds upon hundreds of illegal immigrants waiting for processing there. You might be able to see a bridge off in the background. That is where the trains come in. Well, CBP has announced they are suspending railway operations to move CBP officers down into the field to help Border Patrol with processing. In other words, Harris, they're shutting down international commerce in order to help speed up processing of these migrants many of them again will be released and back out here live mm -hmm. december is traditionally one of the slowest months at our southern border but uh, the border patrol union tells us right now their numbers show they are on track to potentially have the highest single month of arrests they have ever had at our southern border we'll um just on that uh that under discussed aspect of what malugan reported about uh commerce it's a big deal uh, Union Pacific tweeted out, roughly 45% of all rail cars moving to and from Mexico cross through El Paso and Eagle Pass. There isn't enough capacity at the other four gateways to reroute them. Union Pacific urges the Eagle Pass and El Paso border crossings be reopened immediately. This is impacting agricultural products, grain held in six Midwest states. Well, that would one of them would be Illinois. Food and beverages, beer and dry food products, automotive, finished vehicles and parts, consumer goods, industrial commodities, metals and cement. 45% of all rail cars. Um, by the way, just in terms of the impact on global commerce, sort of these uh, de facto lockdowns happening uh, in a stilted way based on border policy, also based on foreign policy emanating from this administration the houthi missile attacks these uh, yemen rebels backed by our partner in peace iran oh yeah so Those the friends of ours right so Obama, the last uh, three terms of the Obama administration would have us believe 
Now they're considering uh, using military force in response to no fewer than 14 drone attacks launched from Houthi-controlled territory in Yemen. They will, um, the uh, Wall Street Journal reporting, they pose the most significant threat to global shipping in decades. This is what happens when you cannot distinguish between friends and enemies, when you don't have enough respect for yourself to provide for yourself, to protect yourself. So it's happening on a small scale, little hamlets called Chicago and New York. It's happening at the national scale, at the border. It's happening at the international scale with global commerce and shipping lanes. And this doesn't even get to the South China Sea and our relationship uh, with the CHICOMs and how that may or may not be compromised because of Biden Inc.'s far-flung foreign dealings to enrich themselves so they can live the Beverly Hillbillies lifestyle in Wilmington, Delaware. Got a great text message. Dan and Amy, it's real simple. If Americans can't vote Democrat, then I will import people who will. Well, uh, to, to turn turn this to a bit of a lighter note, um, because, I mean, it, it, it is grotesque, uh, like a Kafka novel. It's surreal, and um, it's difficult to satire. Enter the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon, who sat down with Tucker Carlson uh, for uh, an interview, you know, the, the show that Tucker's still doing on Twitter for now. Um, and... Um, it was, it's just really interesting because uh, you know, all of the fact checkers that try to disabuse you of what you know to be true about this topic with respect to border security, national security, um, uh, state sponsors of terror that are supposed to be our partners in peace in the region. All of these things that make it they're very difficult to parody because they're so absurd on their face. It's difficult to further demonstrate their absurdity even when it's supposedly uh, the product of serious people, right? Um, but some good uh, examples of, of just exactly what we're talking about. The Babylon Bee has a problem with their phony headlines being believed because it's so consistent to it's, what people are actually experiencing. No way. And he's got some great oh. examples. And then he gets into this discussion of the fact-checkers. Oh. Snopes and the Washington Clen Kessler are the fact checkers. <laughs> this is great. Um, but they would fact check them regular ridiculous jokes like, you know, AOC goes on the prices right, guesses everything is free. Or, um, or, you know, Ninth Circuit Court overturns death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> you know, these these are it, it, they're, they're they're silly jokes. They're funny jokes. But sometimes people believe that it's true because you could actually see somebody doing this. Who came up with those two? I think one of my honestly one of my favorites that got fact checked was our joke about Trump saying that he had done more for Christianity than Jesus himself, and that was uh, that was your headline. That was the headline: Trump, I have done more for Christianity than Jesus. But he kind of said that at some point, didn't he? He did. Well, yeah. So we we made that joke in 2019. It got fact checked shortly thereafter because it went crazy viral. And then in 2021, I think it was 2021 or 2022, he said he'd done more for Christianity and religion in general than any other person in history. So I, it's hard to tell sometimes. Are people reading our website and getting ideas for what to say and what to do? I don't know. But that, that one was kind of so how do you- That kind of stuff is ridiculous. We actually threatened to sue Snopes because they were, they were 
literally maligning us and suggesting that we were mis misinforming people on purpose. And then Facebook was saying that they were going to demonetize and deplatform us because we were being fact-checked by Snopes. So they're saying you can't spread fake news on our platform. We're like, it's satire. Do they play any constructive role in our public conversation? No. <laughs> no. I mean, come on. well, for, first of all, they're spending their time fact-checking satire. <laughs> fact-checking satire, right. The uh, satirical outlet is the purveyor of misinformation. The openly satirical outlet. But the people pushing unintentional satire are the, the great uh, guardians of our democracy and a free press and truth and protecting the uh, fragile American from uh, the uh, evils of disinformation, which has now become a synonym for truth. Satire has become pr purposeful, open satire is now predictive. I mean, that was the thrust of the interview, and it's so true. You know why it's predictive? The satire is so predictive because you're just doing the logical thinking that these sentimental barbarians won't. So here's what they're actually doing. Here's the next logical thing they'll do. Take this, you know, reductio ad absurdum. Take this to its most ridiculous end. And you're just a little bit ahead of what they're actually doing. It logically follows all of this stuff on identity, all this stuff emanating from identitarian politics. I don't envy Seth Dillon and the Babylon Beast app because I mean, writing the comedy is really difficult in an era that is this astoundingly, astoundingly absurd. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. On AM 560. We're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny f***ing K. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Dan and Amy, got to tell you, keep it a little bit light. You know, it is Christmas. True. Holidays. Um, Larry the Cable Guy, remember him? I love that guy. Yeah. Still the wearing Nebraska their fan. sleeveless uh, flannel shirts and stuff. Right? Get her done. I got to get her done, too. Um, Larry the Cable Guy, so back at the height of his popularity, this is, I mean, this is sort of interesting because it's so long ago. And yet, and people maybe forget how long the astoundingly absurd culture that I was just describing has been afoot here. You mean the clown world that we live in? Yes. Yeah, and clown how world. and how sort of uh, you know blithely dismissive or willfully blind people were about what was happening. Oh, it's let them have their fun. Sure, okay. 
How about now? Well, anyway, uh, Larry the Cable Guy, one of his uh, stand-up offerings uh, d- around the holidays, did this with the kids gathered around on stage. It was the night before a non-denomination, a winter holiday, went all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The neutral gift sacks were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that a non-specific holiday figure would soon be there. <laughs> Children of every race, creed, and nationality were resting all snug in their beds while visions of sugar-free plums danced in their heads. <laughs> when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I got up out of bed to see what was the matter and to see who was violating the neighborhood sound level ordinance. <laughs> But what in my wandering eyes did appear? But an emissions-free vehicle, an eight-size challenge reindeer. <laughs> Holiday figure was so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be Holiday figure. <laughs> he had a broad but normal face, an advanced-sized belly, and he laughed, Lady of the evening, Lady of the evening, Lady of the evening. What in the world? You can't even say ho, ho, ho no more. <laughs> what kind of comic crap is this? I don't care who you are. His name is Santa Claus, and he cracks deer with a horse whip, breaks into people's houses, drinks rum and eggnog, and looks like Uncle Jesse from Dukes of Hazard. in the Yeah. Yeah, that's that's that was more than when, fifteen when, years ago. Really? Yeah. How did he know? Well, because it, it was happening. I, I do you remember the? Um, I'm sure some of our uh, listeners will remember. Remember James Finn Garner's books in the mid uh, mid 1990s. I'm talking 94, 95. Politically correct bedtime stories. Uh, politically incorrect holiday stories. There were just little books that were parodies, sort of like Larry the Cable Guy's, and they were bestsellers. God, before you came here, when John Howell was here, we would do a segment, a War on Christmas segment, starting in November and going all the way through to the end of the year. Right, but different, but I mean, you know. b- but the War on Christmas stuff, which is you know also the I mean, uh, uh, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas. I don't want to get into that. That is, I mean, so uh, uh, banal compared to what has been happening for the last. Well, it's in my mind, it's a hundred years. But even if you're paying passive attention. If you had a kid in college, anywhere from the mid-1980s on, you cannot have been unaware what was happening, what you were hearing about, even if you sort of, again, were not engaged on it. This has been going on for so long. So much scar tissue has been built up. That's why the people, and there's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about this, too. Uh, oh, Gen Z, you know, they'll grow out of it. Uh, the whole, in your 20s, you don't have a heart. In your 40s, you don't have a brain, blah, blah, blah. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. When enough scar tissue has been built up, you can't uh, fix the patient. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM 560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. 
on AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The answer. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, we've got a, a couple of topics uh, to cover in this installment of Sports and Politics, but let's start with uh, former Illini standout Richard Mendenhall. Uh, he was a first-round draft pick. Uh, he was drafted by the Steelers. He was in the league for a while. I mean, he had a you know, decent to solid career for a running back when in a league where it's tough to be, it's tough to have a long career if you're a running back because you you know, take so many right. hits. Get hit, knocked down a lot, huh? He tweeted out, but but this is a pattern with Mendenhall that, uh, per this tweet, uh, people have gone back and looked, including myself, and you, you see a sort of a pattern here in terms of his um, philosophy on life. Uh, Mendenhall tweeted, I'm sick of average white guys commenting on football. Y'all not even good at football. Can we please replace the Pro Bowl with an all-black versus all-white bowl so these cats can stop trying to teach me who's good at football? I'm better than your goat. You know, greatest of all time. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And unsurprisingly, the um, responses came pouring in. And what was one Dan Prof's response via Twitter to this? Uh, Richard Mendenhall, Niles West High School grad, just another failure of Illinois' government schools. Oh, you laid the hammer. Bing. Well, I mean, I don't want to get – I mean, I, honestly, you want to get into doing, like, the rosters for the all-white versus all-black Pro Bowl? Uh, you know, I, I, J.J. Watt, I saw, tweeted out, what like, uh, we'd have a problem on the outside because uh, nobody on our team could guard Tyreek Hill. Um, I've got news for you. Nobody in the NFL, black, white, or other, can uh, can defend Tyreek Hill. So it's not a black-white thing. It's a Tyreek Hill has otherworldly speed thing. But anyway. Well, and the irony is is that my mom and your dad graduated together from Niles West. Niles East. Well, Niles East, but then, yeah. Niles East. That was, I mean, that was Niles East back then. Let's, you know, make sure right, we correct the right. record. We don't want to be thrown in with, with Richard Mendenhall. No. God's no. sakes. Uh, although he came quite a bit after our parents, um, just a little bit. Yeah, this is—I I mean, I, this is—you know—somebody responded. No, actually, he's a good example. He's not an example of failure. He's a success, example of success because this is what they've been teaching. I mean, Rashard Mendenhall is in his mid to late thirties. This is what they've been teaching in the government K through twelve schools, and and by the way, at U of I too, uh, in so many respects for the last uh, several generations. So this is what they want to produce is, you know, uh, ill-considered race hustlers like Richard Mendenhall. Yeah, I mean, it's pitting us versus them, and it's race baiting. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. It's really sort of um, disconcerting when it happens in sports because – one, because it's the infusion of politics and the infusion of politics in, in anything that is um, that it, it can, can otherwise be held as sacrosanct destroys it and so it makes it unpalatable, which is what's happened to sports and the arts and 
everything else that we can enjoy to have a well-rounded life that it is not obsessed with the politics of the day. I mean, I'm all for, obviously, it's my job. I'm all for paying attention to politics and policy and civic life, but th there should be some sanctuaries from it as well. Anyway, the other thing is, of course, it's frustrating because for so long, sports has been ahead of the learning curve when it comes to race relations. And to um, have spoiled brats on ungrateful thoughtless uh, individuals like Richard Mendenhall, who has uh, done very well in life because of the opportunities provided yeah. through sport in America, to have them foment this sort of discord and perpetuate this sort of ignorance is frustrating, <laughs> isn't it? We got a text message. Which team gets Mahomes? <laughs> Yeah, I know. There's a lot of people saying that. Right. Yeah, of course. That's funny because he's black and white. Yeah. yeah thank you thank for explaining the joke. You know. Yeah. yeah. Glad it didn't uh, slip by you. I like this one, too. Um, right. I'm sick of average running backs fumbling the ball away in the most important game they'll ever play. But I guess we both won't get what we want, Richard. Uh, that's a Steelers fan talking about Richard uh, Mendenhall fumbling against the Packers in the Super Bowl. But it's interesting he brings that up because Richard Mendenhall at the time said I didn't fumble in the Super Bowl. Oh, well, then what was that? That's a fumble. What is he said, I didn't, I didn't fumble in the Super what Bowl. What does Clay Matthews think happened? My coaches would feel like a-holes to say that I did. I never did. I was separated from the ball four <laughs> yards into the backfield. It was a separated. mutual agreement. Yeah. yeah they yes. went to a mediator. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> they had a cooling off period to see if they could live together. The football in, in, in Richard Mendenhall's hands. Um, he, but he argues that's, a, that's the uh, running back equivalent of a strip sack. There's nothing I could have done about it. Respect my career. <laughs> I mean, uh, this you guy. You respect my career. Who does he think he is? He should He's going full take Cartman. a bite of humble pie. Respect uh, my authority. Uh, yes. That's a Richard Mendenhall, this just in, just you know, correcting the records for uh -huh. Steelers fans and Packers fans, I guess, for that matter. Richard Mendenhall did not fumble in uh, that Super Bowl that uh, the Packers won, the one Aaron Rodgers Super Bowl victory. Um, he was separated from the ball. Respect his career. I, I, that, that sort of response gives you an insight into Mendenhall if you actually needed much of an insight after the tweet that I read about an all-black versus all-white Super Bowl so, uh, who's, so you could stop trying to teach you who's good and, and who's, who's good at football. I'm better than your go. By the way, the guys, I don't even know the average white guys commenting on football. Um, I don't know who they are. There's some average black guys commenting on football, too. Um, I, I don't recall Michael Wilbon being a standout NFL player, for example. Um, so I, I don't even know what the point of that is. And this is why I don't really want to get into all white versus all black, uh, the, who the commentators are and who they are not, because then, then you're just playing his idiotic game, this this Mendenhall uh, kids Indiana game. It's, it's pathetic. I, I wonder uh, the guys who played with them at U of I and in the pros, I, you know, I just, ugh, God, to talk about a locker room cancer, if this is how he actually expressed himself to uh, his fellow teammates, both at the collegiate level and the pros. I don't know. It's a, now Jason Whitlock. Oh, um, what did he say? Um, he, he went next level on this. 
Jason Whitlock, um, you you know, I'm I mean, I'm a big fan. Oh yeah. He's a average black guy. I mean, I think he he played he played college football, but you know. Um, but anyway, he's a average black guy who co- comments on sports too. I'm sure Richard Mendenhall wouldn't like him because he's also a Christian conservative. But anyway, he's got the Fearless podcast, which I recommend. He posted a picture of Mendenhall's wife, and he said, "I'm quoting here." He tweeted. As soon as I heard Mendenhall's ignorant comments, I went to check on his wife. No surprise. These love the fruit, hate the tree Negroes are always doing way too much to restore their quote-unquote blackness. No one who knows me thinks I have a problem with interracial dating. No one. My problem is with these guilt-written fake Negroes who make buffoonish comments to mask their love of white meat. Find a new gimmick. Getting a little chippy out there. <laughs> that got <laughs> ugly quick. Okay. Well, I mean, with a picture of his wife is perfectly lovely, and I, 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 I the the, ch- the uh, chatter I saw online. I don't know if she's white or she's uh, Middle Eastern. And somebody said, I think somebody said that she's Lebanese, but whatever. Um, yeah, Jason Whitlock's trying to amp this discussion up a little bit. Apparently, he's got uh, some access to gore. Um, Bill, Northwest Side. Yeah, let's do a side-by-side highlight tape of Rashard Mendenhall versus Christian McCaffrey from the from 49ers. And let's see how that looks. And let's see what he says then about the, let's see what he, let's see how he defines the color discrepancy that way. Well, that's the point. Thanks for the call, Bill. I mean, there obviously, um, there are many, many, many great, NFL running backs, uh, uh, and a few of them have been white. Uh, I, I just like what, what I mean. It's it's sort of fun fantasy discussions to you know argue about who's the best running back ever. Emmett Smith has the most yards, but Barry Sanders, no. Obviously, we would say sweetness, and right. um, and there have been great durable backs, the punishing backs like Christian McCaffrey, like John Riggins. But I mean, so it's like what 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 is even the point of arguing along racial lines? I, I just find. It's just so tiresome. It's just it's it's so played out. But it's interesting how much action this stupid, stupid comment by Mendenhall is getting. It says something about where we are and where we're not, I suppose. Uh, Mary Kay, Western Springs. Yeah, so that's my first thought was the super the eighty five Bears. You know, you had you know Peyton, my all time favorite athlete besides um jordan um Duerson, the refrigerator perry again right. we're, we're familiar with the 85 bears i don't think yes. they've gotten enough yeah yeah, yeah yeah i know all yeah, right so right you got, right yeah so yeah. the racial line so there you go dan it's the racial lines you know like if it, it's a stupid comment you shouldn't have said it because um here we go down that down that um road again um and it's just not a good road it doesn't end well you know that's, that's all I have to say about it. Thanks for the call. His, no, I agree. Rashad Mendenhall's wife is white. Well, that's what that's what I just, yeah. that's what I just said. I, mean, I, I thought you mentioned she was Lebanese or something, but she's yeah. Well, that's that's no, it's that's being discussed online that there's she's not people saying she's not white. She's actually Middle Eastern or she's uh, Lebanese. I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't care. Right. And Jason Whitlock doesn't either. He's just sort of highlighting the you know the white. There's this this. All this sort of like 
attack whiteness as some sort of evil abstraction that takes human form in other human beings. And it's just so silly because that's not how most people live, including those that spend all their time race hustling. Like Richard Mendenhall, apparently. That's his point. Marty Naperville. Good morning. Uh, well, what about, uh, uh, you know, well, let's see what this Mendenhall looks like today with his college education and he's in his mid-30s. I'll bet he's broke, for starters. Number two, uh, it doesn't matter black or white. I mean, look at, look at Terry Bradshaw, who said he couldn't spell cat if he gave him a C and a T. And he probably knows more than his Mendenhall does about football. Uh, you know, it's just, they, they, they just mouth off these jacks. They, they're He's probably broke. He's 38. He's probably broke, and, of course, um, it's our fault or somebody else's fault. So, Thanks for the call, Marty. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what his financial situation is. I hope it's fine. I, I think it's tragic when these athletes get uh, bad advice and have grifters around them, and so many of them end, end up BK a few years removed from the league, and particularly in the NBA and NFL. Baseball, too, but to a lesser extent. I mean, this was all documented in that great ESPN 30 for 30 on the topic. So I'm not wishing financial ruin on Mendenhall. I just wish he would smarten up a bit. Uh, Bill in Cape Coral, Florida. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, the Christmas table this year uh, when uh, his in-laws, his wife's side of the family, are all there, and their siblings or cousins or whatever are in high school sports, football, uh, college sports, whatever level, and they're all sitting around talking. Uh, that's got to be a real easy, relaxing uh, dinner there. Yeah, you <laughs> something else, boy. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Bill. I got another one here, NFL topic, too. This, now, this, this may, may get a little bit more interesting. And Jason Whitlock opined on this, too, when he wasn't mincing words. Roger Goodell was asked recently about the prospect of the NFL having its first uh, female general manager. And this is what uh, the pea-headed Roger Goodell said, coming uh, fresh out of a die meeting. Uh, NFL offices. Right. Let me hear it. I said in that yep. DEI session that there will be a woman general manager eventually, pretty soon. You know, what would that mean for the league for that to happen? I think it'd be fantastic. Um, you know, we had uh, several women that participated in the accelerator program. Um, we have a lot of people, and we have a, a one candidate in our office who I think is uh, certainly could be a general manager. Uh, and so I, I believe. Um, that that's, that day will come, and it will come soon. I think the number one thing, it, it goes back to um, talent meeting opportunity. The talent is there, uh, and the talent is getting better. They're participating in programs like this. Um, I think, you know, there's only 32 of those positions. The turnover isn't quite as great there as it is in the coaching. Um, but I think those candidates are ready, and I think it's just going to be meeting the two of those. What do you think, uh, Goldie Hawn on the sidelines or in the front office at an NFL team? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-36DA, turnkey.pro text line. I'm over gender. I mean, if You're she's qualified, gender. sure, put her in. But if she's not qualified, then don't. Don't try to be so woke and so like, oh, look, we really care. We need a female general manager. We're, we're fine. I don't need any of this gobbledygook stuff. Uh, Jason Whitlock. I uh, had. Oh, had a different take on. <laughs> no, what he had. A, I mean, Whitlock he had. A, he had a, the similar take, but I think he was a little bit more pointed in his oh, okay. uh, re- reaction. Uh, here's what he said: I, I just don't remember any women playing football. I don't remember any of them really coaching football at a very high level. 
I don't remember any of them scouting football at a very high level. This is a joke to me, and I know I'm a sexist pig and throw rotten tomatoes at me, but that's just the way I feel. I'll cede my time to Jason Whitlock on the topic. Uh, Larry and Elmhurst, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, Joliet Catholic's own Mike Allstott had more yards rushing than Gail Sayers did. Uh, yeah, okay. Would, would you Would you rather take, if you were drafting, would you draft Gail Sayers over Mike Allstott? Yeah, but no. do you see the yards receiving? Uh, I okay. I mean, this that's fine. But what I mean, if you want to argue Gail Sayers versus Mike Allstott, yeah, I I know. But uh, thanks for the caller. (laughs) The the whole point is like seriously, we we, we're going to get into. I mean, if you want to have the fantasy football conversation about you know Emmett Smith versus versus Peyton or or Peyton versus Jim Brown or Peyton versus Sanders for that matter, then fine. But I mean. But you're really going to have it around, around racial lines, and you're really going to say Mike Allstott was a better back than Gail Sayers, who you know whose career got shut by a catastrophic knee injury that no one could predict it. I mean, Gail Sayers, come on, come on. I mean, that's just that's why I hate the race stuff. It's so counterproductive. It takes us to such ridiculous places. Let's don't indulge Richard Mendenhall's idiocy. You know. By the way, uh, Barry Sanders, did I, have I mentioned this documentary about him on Amazon? No, I do not. There, there's a, a documentary on Barry Sanders, and it sort of answers the question of why he, I mean, part of the big part of it is, you know, why did he really retire uh, when he was at the height of his game? People forget he played 10 years. But anyway, um, and it includes his sons, and there's this scene at the end of the documentary, I won't ruin it, but where his sons go to London with him where he went after he faxed in his I'm retiring notice to the Lions, and they have the conversation in London where he was, you know, back so many years when he retired, to have this conversation around sort of the, the lunch table having having beers, uh, and it's really cool. Um, I love Barry Sanders from Oklahoma State all the way through his career. I I think you could make a strong case that he was the best running back who ever played. I, I know I'm going to get Walter Payton and there's Jim Brown. I got it. But I'm just saying, if you like Barry Sanders, even if you don't think he was the greatest, if you liked him and appreciated how great he was, you're going to like him even more when you watch this documentary. He is just a class act all the way through. And he took some uh, unfair grief for not being an outgoing personality and not feeling like he needed to justify everything he did in his life before the sports press corps, including his retirement. Oh, I know. When I worked in Detroit, they wanted like, they wanted him on the Sunday show yeah, after of course. the game, and he didn't do it. And I just remember people being frustrated. Well, in the newsroom, but then also too, they just wanted more. They they couldn't get enough of him. Well, of and course, he, let, he didn't let them in. And I thought, well, good for him. That's his choice. He he's he's a just he's letting him in now again though, with this documentary. Again, newfound respect for Barry Sanders, who I started, uh, you know, having on a pedestal, but. This is a this is a really good dude. Okay. People should check out that documentary. Good holiday watching. Uh, George in Naperville. Yeah, yeah, don't some of those NFL cheerleaders wear their skirts at a very high level? What does that have to do with anything? I don't, what does that what mean? What does that have to do with a woman being I'm missing the general manager? I'm missing the qualified. <laughs> 
I know George is usually tries to chime in with a, a one liner like a zinger, but I'm. But he failed miserably on that one. I'm missing. I'm missing that one. Just as I missed the Honey Bears. Oh, I remember them. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? I like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. On AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, this story uh, was brought to our attention by friends out there in Woodstock and scenic McHenry County. Uh, Renee Mastney uh, took to Facebook to describe a situation with her son, Jimmy, who's a freshman at Marion Central Catholic in Woodstock. He's a high school wrestler who began wrestling at eight years old. He was uh, homeschooled prior to attending high school. Okay. Uh, that was a choice the family made, not for athletics, but for the best interest of our child, writes mom on Facebook. After a lot of consideration, she goes on to say, our family made the decision to send Jimmy to Marion Central rather than homeschool. It was a difficult decision, but we wanted our son to receive a structured Catholic school education, and we felt it was in his best interest. Enrolling him in Marion Central required our family to make significant sacrifices, but in the end, we did what we felt was best for our son, and we accepted the hardships that came along with the decision. We'll delve into those when she joins us. Uh, anyway, so he's at Marion Central, and there's some anonymous allegations that are being bandied about that are unclear to me, but it sounds like allegations of improper recruiting. I don't know. I'm trying to read between the lines. No, that happens all the time at CPS. <laughs> it happens all the time in everywhere. Catholic schools and uh, public schools and everywhere, of course. I mean, this is, but, but anyway, anonymous allegations were made to IHSA about the Marion Central Wrestling Program targeting uh, three wrestlers that had transferred to the school during the offseason, and and Jimmy somehow. He's an incoming freshman. He didn't transfer from anywhere, but anyway. The other three were cleared and allowed to wrestle. Jimmy was not cleared. He was declared ineligible and ineligible to compete for all four years of high school if he stays at Marion Central. The coach was also suspended for the remainder of the season, I understand. So now uh, the Masney family, as uh, mom writes, is trying to figure out what to do. The, he's doing well at Marion Central academically, so it's a good fit for him academically, which is the most important thing. But he also loves wrestling, and he wants to wrestle at the high school level, which is understandable. And he's got this IHSA decision that's prohibiting from doing prohibiting from him from doing so. Okay, that's the backstory as I understand it. Let's uh, get some more detail, greater understanding from Renee and Jimmy Masney, who join us now. Uh, Miss uh, Re- Mrs. Renee Masney, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you for having us. So, did I summarize that accurately? Yes. Okay. So, um, what, like, with respect to Jimmy's case, is it surrounding allegations of improper recruiting? Is that what they're saying? Yes, there's allegations of recruiting. Alleg- allegations of recruiting. Uh, okay. Um, and so, so uh, I guess uh, describe to us what happened with the IHSA, you know, what you say versus what they, they concluded, I suppose. So Jimmy lives with friends of ours um, who I've been friends with since 
2017, and we've become very, very close. Well, Stacy is Jordan's mom, and the IHSA feels that that would be considered recruitment. However, I don't understand how they can downplay relationships that I have with somebody um, and just automatically peg, well, it doesn't look right or feel right, so it must not be right. Well, wait a second. So, um, wait. So, so he lives with a friends of yours. The mom is who? The mom he, the 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 person he lives with is who exactly? Is the coach's mom? Oh, the coach's. He's the coach's mom. Yes. Oh, I see. And so they're saying because coach's mom is providing um, housing, uh, you know, providing a home for Jimmy while he's at, uh, in school there. That's recruiting, and, and that violates some IHSA rule? Correct. But, however, um, she has guardianship with Jimmy. She's his legal guardian? Correct. Um, well, I mean, if you don't mind me prying, right. why is that? What is, the, what is behind that arrangement? Uh, well, it was Jimmy came to me one day and said he wanted to go to Marion Central Catholic High School, and... Um, We've reviewed the options of uh, getting an apartment, moving, and um, during one of our conversations, she just said, hey, you know, I've taken legal guardianship over somebody in the past. Um, you know, I would be willing to do so for you. It, it, and Well, where do you live? In Oregon. Oregon, Illinois. Okay, so so is this, is this a situation where to make it um, feasible for Jimmy to go to Marion Central... He's living with a coach's mom who you're friends with so that he can attend school and he doesn't have a, whatever, an hour and a half or two-hour commute. Correct. Well, I mean, he's, he's living with my friend first, right? Before, yeah. she was my friend first and foremost. Okay. So she, you had a friendship with her that predates, Jim, predates the decision for Jimmy to go to Marion Central? Oh, yeah. And how long has Jimmy been wrestling? Uh, he's been wrestling since um, he was eight years old. That's when he started. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, okay, go dance. Well, is there is there? Um, I mean, so so uh, I, you know, I'm not familiar with the level of detail of IHSA rules on this sort of thing. But w- what is the rule they're invoking that uh, they say uh, you're in violation of, or Jimmy is? Um, well, recruitment, and he's being offered an opportunity that other children aren't offered, which, you know, is not the case. Was he getting a scholarship to attend the school or some financial aid? No. Hmm. Well, even if he was, other other kids can get right. uh, scholarships and financial aid, too. I mean, and this is a, well, this is a private school. I mean, um, and so the, the, and how did you zero in on Marion Central as opposed to a, a school um, uh, closer to where you live? And and I don't know what the private options are out that way. But but, yeah, I mean, how did you make the decision on Marion Central? Uh, Jimmy ultimately did. He had done a camp in 2020 with one of the old wrestling coaches and he, uh, you know, heard about it. People obviously talk about, you know, every school out there. Um, Jimmy did a shadow day back in May, and he said, this is where I want to go, now which in turn is why he's thriving, right? right. 
and, but he's not going to be able to wrestle. What year is, is Jimmy a freshman? Yep. Okay, so if he can't wrestle for the next four years, have you had the conversation of maybe going to your local high school in Oregon, Illinois? But then, I mean, his academics go down, right? right? So at the end of the day, the, the choice for him to be at Marion Central is a good choice. He's getting straight A's, and um, he's being held accountable for his uh, for his decisions and his grades and things like that. You know, the Catholic school holds you holds these kids to a different standard. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and there's not a. Um... A choice that's within, uh, you know, within proximity to your home, that is equivalent, I, I suppose. Not, I mean, not in Jimmy's mind. In our minds, my husband and I, you know, gave him different options, and he just didn't want to. Uh, and um, um, the, the coach being suspended. So the coach has been suspended for the rest of the year. The IHSA is saying the same thing, that sort of he arranged this and this is in violation of the spirit, if not the letter, of the uh, rules governing recruitment. Is that, is that, I mean, uh, is that, is that what they're, is that what, is that why the coach got suspended? Is that what they're saying? IHSA? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so, um, so what, what, do you have any idea the allegations against Jimmy and his, uh, his uh, teammates, what, where they came from? Um, there are, sure, there, there are allegations, but at the end of the day, I mean, that it, it doesn't matter. The IHSA should have been uh, able to say, okay, here, we, we have a freshman going into high school who's never attended another high school. Right. This is it's not and 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 um um i mean is there i i, I don't know if to, you know within this whole saga if you um investigated whether there's uh, a similar precedent and um different ihsa rulings on an arrangement like this um i i have not no i mean cuz I, I mean i just you know anecdotally about basketball in chicago in particular of you know standouts that wanted to go not to their neighborhood school, but go to a school with an outstanding basketball program and, you know, they stay with an aunt and so on and so forth. And that's that's been allowed to go on in CPS, as Amy was sort of referencing for decades. But um, so, I mean, if if we can hear from Jimmy. So, Jimmy, I mean, what what's your where's your mind now with uh, this decision? And and um, uh, what do you think you're what do you think you want to do? As right, right now, I think my plan is to stay at Marion for the next four years. So it's got to be so frustrating for you. I mean, what do you? Can you even work out with the team? Because I know it's wrestling season right now. I can work out with the team. I just can't uh, wrestle at duels or tournaments. Is there? Um, are there other alternatives? I'm not as familiar with wrestling. I mean, are there sort of like the AAU version of wrestling? Are there independent? Uh, or Park District, or other uh, wrestling programs that you can participate in, even if you can't uh, wrestle at the, you know, uh, under IHSA? No, not during the winter, but uh, during the summer there is. So, so how do you how do you think about this? So, I mean, it was so the the 
it sounds like basically what your mom was saying. This is such a good fit for you academically and you enjoy the school and the environment that you're placing that above um, your interest in, in wrestling. Is that fair? Correct. And um, and um, I mean, just just I guess speak to why you think that why you feel that way. I mean, what what is it about Marion that um, um, is ha- would have you walk away from sports? Uh, smaller class sizes, I just feel better than those, and then it's easier to get into college with uh, private school education than public. Okay. Um, Mom, Renee, is uh, there any um, appeal uh, that you can make or are going to make of that IHSA decision? I mean, we we talked recently about with a family from uh, Hinsdale that uh, sued the school district over cutting their kid from the basketball team. Is are you pursuing other options here? Um, yes, we will. Such as what? Litigation, um, or are you going to try and file an injunction, or what do you think? I think, like, it's still open for discussion. Okay. Like, we have to have those discussions. All right. Uh, Renee Masney, Jimmy Masney, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Good luck uh, with both your academic and athletic careers in whatever form they take. Jimmy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate you. Have a great day. Merry Christmas. You too, and good luck to both of you. And they joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The Answer. That sound means, of course, it's time for in-depth history with Frank from Arlington Heights. Because there's nothing new in this world. It's just the history we don't know. Frank joins us with a philosophical perspective on Christmas. Timely indeed. Frank, take it away. Good morning. A few months ago, there was a new archaeological discovery in Pompeii, which revealed the horrors of Roman slavery. What was found was, in effect, a prison bakery in a basement of a patrician home, fit with iron bars on the small windows to prevent escape by the enslaved who lived and toiled there. Such slavery was a norm in Rome. It was rare one of them became a tutor to the rich young. Most worked in the fields, the mines, or permanently chained to a bench to row an oar on a galley ship. There was much darkness in the world then, and there still is today. For those who celebrate Christmas, it might also be good to look at the rise of Christianity, though, from a philosophical perspective. It emerged as an antidote to these grim realities of ancient life from a period called the Axial Age, which ran from 800 to 200 B.C. In it, great thinkers across the globe, like Plato, the Buddha, Confucius, and Zoroaster, began to question the underlying assumptions of the existing order. A few centuries later, Saints Peter and Paul applied Axial Age ideas to Christ's teachings as the hopeful dualist religion grew, open to all as a universalist creed. Had it been known to them, the salvation it provided all believers would have appealed to those captive slaves in Pompeii as it preached that there was indeed light in the universe. The struggle against darkness, though, continues to this day. This is why we must keep the faith. I think Charles Dickens said it well. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. Merry Christmas, everyone. Oh, it's wonderful, Frank. A very well-composed, uh, thoughtful essay from Frank. 
As per usual, that's what we've come to expect with in-depth history from Frank in Arlington Heights, the teacher every kid should have. Unfortunately, only those who go to... Uh, what, what an outing them. Where do you teach again? No, no, no. This is I secret. know, I'm just saying. Well, he's in Arlington Heights, so you do the math. Well, Frank, uh, I'm not outing him. I'm not doxing Frank in Arlington Heights. He's uh, in Arlington Heights, and but he's also everywhere because, like Christmas, he's in our hearts. Oh, oh my God. Are you getting sentimental? Yeah. Did you fall on your head, Dan Broth? Frank in Arlington Heights, thank you, as always, for in-depth history. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. An AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just uh, one postscript on that uh, interview we did with... uh, Renee and Jimmy Masney. Uh-huh. Uh, so I understand that uh, the coach's mom, who uh, is providing a home for Jimmy while he attends Marion Central in Woodstock, that she had done that before for a student that didn't play sports, just for uh, the access to the academic quality that is provided by Marion Central Catholic. So, I mean, that certainly does inform the idea that it's more about the opportunity to go to that school for academic reasons than it is about sort of improper recruiting, that it's not sports that's the prism. It's the school's uh, academic reputation and particularly as it relates to uh, families in Illinois that don't have similar options locally. And frankly, Jimmy's decision to say, I'm staying at Marion Central, even if I can't wrestle, also speaks to that as well. And I mean, at best, I would say for the IHSA, it smacks of selective enforcement of of, of something that is rarely enforced. I mean, we know you and I, Amy, both know uh, boys basketball coaches in CPS who made careers out of recruiting basketball talent oh, yeah. from one part of the city to the other. I won't name, name any names, Sonny Landon Cox. Um, well, it's selective you know. enrollment. Like, with that, you have principal's discretion, and they take certain athletes that are needed on certain teams, mostly you know high-profile ones like football and basketball, and that's how they get in the school. Well, right, and so it's also sort of the larger philosophy that like, kids should be able to go where they want. I know. And, you know, and, and, and so a private school, uh, even if a private school, uh, the only reason that private school recruiting is, oh, it's tisk tisk is because you have a centrally planned K through 12 system that locks kids in based on their geography. If you had a competitive K through 12 system, the way that we have a competitive uh, collegiate system that's not bounded by the artificial uh, lines of a district drawn by you know, central planners, then all of this goes away. So, you know, for, for anybody's like skeptical, oh, the mom's doing something that's, you know, not consistent with the spirit. Yeah, but she's, she's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a Soviet style system. So she's doing what's in the best interest of her kid and, yeah. and he's doing the same apparently. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting case for those reasons. Cause it speaks to the way the system's set up in the first place as well as the selective enforcement by IHSA, which is not exactly a body, if you remember how they performed during COVID, that deserves any sort of um, 
uh, benefit of the doubt in my mind. Okay, had to get that out. Now we uh, want to update our Food for the Poor uh, holiday campaign. Uh, we are getting close, I think, to uh, maxing out our business benefactor, uh, business benefactor program. Uh, we've got a bunch of new businesses that have signed up, including the Freedom Boat Club of Chicago and Michiana. I like that name, oh, Freedom nice. Boat Club. Uh, Mathnasium of Chicagoland, uh, where uh, Amy Jacobson was a standout mathlete. D and W Law Group, Heart Puzzles, General Parts, uh, Tyson Roofing, and many, many more. How do other businesses join the Business Benefactor Program, Amy? Before it's all filled up. Well, and again, this is the best deal in all of Chicagoland Radio. I know that my dentist is in the process of signing up, and I heard that your dentist is as well. So yes. that's good. It's really the best way to take your business to the next level and get some new clients, uh, because. Like-minded people stick together, that's for sure. So to become a business benefactor, we're asking for a one-time donation of $2,500. It's tax deductible. And as a way of saying thank you, we will give you 40 one-minute commercials that will air right here Monday through Friday. We can even voice your commercials if you would like. Um, just call Ann Jeanette. Ready to write down the number? It is 847-472-8951. That's 847-472-8951. 8951. Get on this. Do it sooner rather than later and see what happens to your business because we've had a lot of advertisers start out as business benefactors like Turnkey IT, um, Tom Sedaka and Precision Payroll. He started out there. Arlington Heights Heating and Cooling. And they're still advertising with us today because it worked. So try it out. You have nothing to lose and you'll be, it, it could be a win win. You're helping 65 children. I mean, imagine that for one year feeding them. Um, 65 kids. It's such a great gift for them. And then you'll see your business grow. The number again, 847-472-8951. For more on how things are proceeding with uh, our campaign and uh, the overall effort that Food for the Poor makes in Central America uh, to provide life-saving food and water and help build infrastructure for uh, families that are on the brink of starvation in countries that uh, just can't take care of their own, unfortunately. We're pleased to be joined again by Paul Jacobs, who's uh, with Food for the Poor. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. I, I still can't get out of my head the standout mathlete that was Amy Jacobson. <laughs> yeah, I can, no, I, no. I can just Surprising. imagine. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can imagine her as like a young teenage girl getting one of those Christmas gifts, the Casio watch with the calculator oh, on yeah, it and like being that. just yeah. falling to pieces saying, thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> she was, uh, if you've seen, if you've seen Freaks and Geeks, she was like the <laughs> me and Bialik character yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm not man. Freaks and Geeks, but um um, uh, Big Bang Theory, I'm sorry. Big, Big Bang, Bang Theory, theory. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, Freaks and Geeks is better. But anyway, I digress. So That's the Dan Prof story. That's yeah, the 80s right. Dan Prof story, right? Yes, right. Uh, yeah, Freaks and Geeks, and I was the cool burnout James Franco character. Yeah, just as much as Amy was a mathlete, that was me. Um, all right, so Paul Jacobs, uh, tell us uh, how the campaign is going. You know, it's these are tough times for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, Bidenflation is uh, you know, doing a number on a lot of people's uh, bank accounts. 
No, that's, you know, that's exactly right. But what I'm really excited about is there is, you went through the list of all those business benefactors. These are businesses. These are uh, organizations that have said they've come together at this very pivotal time in the year where they've turned their attention away from themselves and turned their attention outward to these families, to these children, their gift of $2,500 and the list of them, you know, providing 62 children food for an entire year. But one of the things that really stood out to me was, community. I thought about that. I thought about how the community of businesses, and I pray that each and every one of you listening under the sound of our voice right now, take note of all those business benefactors and go back and frequent their business because what they have effectively done is they've turned a gift of $2,500 and because Food for the Poor has a match doubling their gift, that means every dollar of that $2,500 is going to be doubled with twice as much food for children, that will effectively save children. Children's lives right now. When you talk about the, the the situation that is taking place, as we do our last minute Christmas shopping, right? I, I don't know about you, but I'm last minute clicking on Amazon or last minute minute running to the to the local store, the mall, or whatever. What's happening right now is food has become scarce in island nations like the where we um, where we took Amy just a number of years ago in Haiti. We're talking about the the after effects of COVID has literally stopped all you know all all normalcy in a place like Haiti but the one thing that it hasn't stopped the one thing that rising inflation hasn't stopped or the skyrocketing food prices has not stopped is food for the poor's desire and focus to make sure that these families are getting the food that they need we have not stopped in the midst of covid in the midst of civil unrest or or rising costs there are dry food rations being distributed out to churches throughout the regions instead of pastors coming to our location because they can't basically can't get in because whether roads are blocked or they just can't afford to drive in fuel costs have risen so high food for the poor has still made the effort to open up regional feeding centers through trusted vetted partners in these areas so that these families can eat every day and by the way amy i just got a text from my dentist dr Fidgel. he signed up yesterday so my dentist is in and uh, i think we're still waiting for confirmation from dr favia so uh-huh. I'm just saying. It'll get there. <laughs> chop, chop. Yeah. Uh, yes. And if you're a business benefactor, talk about that one-time donation of $2,500. What exactly will they get for that kind donation? How many oh, kids will be, they be helping? That's 62 children eating every single day for an entire year from this time, from this moment that you give until this time next year, two meals a day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's sort of incredible, um, the numbers uh, in terms of uh, the, the relatively small amount of money that feeds so many people for such a long period of time. I mean, h- how do you guys do that exactly? You know, that, that's the miracle in everything. First of all, Food for the Poor, more than 40 years ago, began uh, ministering um, and it began in prayer. Let's just you know really say what it is. It began as a, as a one man, our founder, praying, God, use me. And I will literally lay everything down in a very successful business career that I can help the poor. And it became as a food program to a, a church in Kingston, Jamaica. And it's grown to primarily 17 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And also for the last 40 years, we have maintained trusted partnerships 
through prayer. But this, the way that the, the strength of how we can do, uh, do, you know, basically turn $2,500 into 62 children eating for the next, for the entire year is the fact that number one, food, a lot of food uh, is donated. We have trusted partners that donate food. So maybe we just simply have to get the food shipped from that point, wherever it may be coming from in the United States, or maybe even the, uh, the Taiwanese government who donates metric tons, thousands of metric tons of rice to our ports in Port-au-Prince. And then there's our, the fact that we are a ministry organization. We're not paying the government. We're not paying uh, tariffs and fees that are exorbitant and it is causing us to literally turn that cost over to our donors. No, we don't have any of that. So we do not have to pay uh, any of these fees getting in. And then, of course, the strength of what we do in the countries, whether it's Haiti, it's Guatemala, it's Honduras, it's partnerships. It's partners that take the food from the ports, take the food from our distribution centers, and Amy, you've seen it firsthand, and they go out into these hospitals, out into these schools, out into these feeding centers regionally to make sure that families in far-reaching communities, communities you may not even find on a map, is going to eat this Christmas, this New Year, and every day for the next year. And you also help out at orphanages, which, you know, I just it's surprising like moms giving their kids away just because they can't feed them. You know, St. Dominique Montesino Orphanage, where you traveled in Haiti, is a beacon of what Food for the Poor does. Here are children abandoned, set aside for no fault of their own. Many of those children you remember, you may remember, Amy, uh, those children were orphaned because of the earthquake in 2010. And now they're here in this orphanage, but they're learning school. They're going to school. They're learning skills. They're getting food every single day. And they're becoming contributing part uh, members of the Haitian community. These children aren't just a burden on the country. They're not burden on the community. They're becoming a part part of a vital future, of a vibrant future, excuse me, for the future of Haiti. And that's the thing, too, in terms of food for the poor, when you're thinking about um, your charitable dollar and what provides the biggest return on that investment that people make. Um, it's not that there's not other good organizations out there, but I mean, if this is something of interest to you, you know, no, you, you, you can't just replicate the trust relationships and the partnerships that you've that Food for the Poor has built up over the last four decades in these areas. And so there's there's nothing that's like it. And so there's nothing that's uh, as efficient as Food for the Poor when it comes to, you know, this specific mission. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that, Dan, because one of the things that was striking to me, one of my last trips to Haiti was we went into a community um, called Kadwa. It was about three hours out from Port-au-Prince. Now, three hours, and, and Amy will tell you, three hours out is <laughs> I mean, it's not that far, but it's they, the roads. There's no infrastructure. <laughs> they haven't fixed some of the roads since the earthquake. Right. right, exactly. So you're talking about an isolated community. But when we came in, they saw the Food for the Poor logo on the truck. It's the Ichthus fish, the, the symbol of Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's the cross. When they saw that, they knew someone was there that was going to help. And the pastor even said, I have heard of you. And I was going to make, you know, make a trip into Port-au-Prince to get, to see if we can find help. And you found us. And now that community is thriving. That community has food every day. In fact, donors in initiated uh, the, the building of a uh, community center as well as a sugarcane factory because sugarcane grew, grows just wild, wild in that, in, in that community and became an industry for them so that they could get an income generating activity that they could get a hand up in their community and earn a living. Again, Food for the Poor has been doing the work that Paul's describing for 40 years. 
17 countries. They fed millions of people around the world and provided more than $15 billion, with a B, dollars in aid. Um, we're looking for a gift of just $80. That can feed two children for a year, speaking about just how efficient Food for the Poor is. For a gift of $320, you can feed eight children for an entire year. To make a gift of any amount, you just call 844-862-4673 or visit us online. You can donate online at 560theanswer.com slash food for the poor. Paul Jacobs, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas. God bless you. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Santa's coming to yeah. Oh, my God. On AM560. Santa here? I know him. The answer. I, I, I got more on the IHSA. You're not going to believe this. What? The timing. So, um, you know, again, in support of the Masney case out there at Marion Central Catholic in Woodstock, the IHSA denied the transfer. This is WGN reporting. The IHSA denied the transfer of a suburban high school wrestler in his senior year. Harrison Condor, who was born deaf, is a senior at Montini Catholic High School in Lombard. He transferred from Downers Grove North after struggling academically as a junior. Okay. Harrison Condor's counselor, academic counselor at Downers North, wrote a letter in support of the transfer, right. saying he would thrive in a smaller school setting with more individualized attention. The family also got similar letters from his therapist and from an audiologist at Lurie's Children's Hospital. And the family, still? the family changed the guardianship of Condor to his grandmother as part of IHSA bylaws to meet transfer requirements. Um, and the move has been great for his grades so far, but the IHSA ruled that he's ineligible to wrestle at Montini. I mean, no, they, you, they can't do that. I mean, I'm an well, IHSA member, it. but if you one of your kids wants to transfer schools, the coach has to write a letter, and well, doctors well, they, have to write a letter. And they did all the they they checked all the boxes. They can't do it. This is, well, who the heck do they think they are? Well, this is the HSA. To my point about how they're not deserving the benefit of the doubt, would you just let these kids play? I mean, I'm not a big fan of um, paying amateur athletes in high school and college to play sports like we have at the collegiate level now. But maybe we need a transfer portal at the state level. Maybe an enterprising legislator wants to do something about that um, because these, these stories are ridiculous. Let, let, let the kids play sports, for God's sakes. Yep, I, I agree, brother. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Santa's coming to yeah! Oh, my God! On AM560. Santa here? I know him. The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law. For 30 plus years running He's promising this and he's stealing that Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now You can pay off your house here in Illinois But you can never keep up with the taxes Oh, how it's always been the plan To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Out. That theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Before we get to Ted and sort of as a segue in, I mean, this IHSA business, we need to do a whole like call in about IHSA horror stories, apparently. Oh, lots uh, of text messages, too. Oof. Go ahead. Dan and Amy, I know basketball players at Kenwood who live in the suburbs. Right. 
Um, the wrestling story is making the rounds on the media. And to be honest, this is making zero sense because the IHSA should let that Jimmy wrestle. There's no uh, no way around it. And the uh, kid at Montini. Yep. Renee Byron, wrestling family here. Keep up the good fight, exclamation point, exclamation point. So uh, uh, We got another one, and this time uh, that this is about the uh, sport that is the most manly sport of all the sports. Uh, are you talking about golf? Well, obviously, see? Right, okay. you know. I, I, you course, know the description. I mean, it's you work up a slather, huh? Hitting that it, little it, white ball. Let's go. What do you got? It's 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 the game within the game. It's mind, body. Yes. It's it's um you know it's mental. It's Andy in Dallas, Texas. Andy so we had we had lived in Hinsdale since ninety nine and around two thousand ten our oldest son uh was ready to go to high school. He got the opportunity to go to a boarding school in Florida to play golf and go to high school. so he did that freshman and junior uh, freshman and sophomore year uh had a great time great experience, but he wanted to come back to Hinsdale and go to Central for his last two years of high school just have a normal high school last couple of years so he 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 transfers up. Um, he tries out for the golf team, which is a really tough team to make. He makes the team, but then IHSA declares him ineligible to compete because he's a first-year transfer. Now, I understand that's the rules, but then the AD at Hinsdale Central, who's a great guy, he said, you can try appealing and call this guy. He's a lawyer in the western suburbs. I'm not gonna is his, his name, name Mike Madigan? No, he's not, but oh, okay, uh, he's right. that, that kind of a creature. He said... So I called I called this lawyer and the, and the guy I mean he this guy is slick and he he was like okay here's where you're gonna do you're gonna write me a check for six thousand dollars and I'm gonna write a letter to the IHSA and lo and behold he we wrote a check and he wrote the letter and our son was declared eligible to play. So there's oh, oh, it's, it's, it's nice it's money bags. Pro- yeah. It's it's the property tax appeal system that applied to sports. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very interesting. Oh, gosh, well, corruption they, in would, the IHSA. Why? What a shocker. So, But normally yeah. when you transfer, don't you have to wait a year before you're eligible to play? Right, except he was transferred from an uh, out-of-state school to his home district. Oh. His home was in Hinsdale. Central was his home district. So he this wasn't a transfer to be able to play on a different, you know, he was transferring to come home. And that was the point that we made. But it was yeah. the resolution of it, paying a yeah. Having right. to pay a connected lawyer who obviously was buddies with the former guy from IHSA. I can't remember his name. Bob something. I mean, yeah. it's just so filthy. Yeah. yeah. Like everything else in Illinois. Thanks for the call. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Boy, boy, peel back the layers uh, at IHSA, and you'll find it operates just like every other governmental institution in Chicagoland and Illinois. Isn't that They don't exercise common sense. And well, they don't think about the children first. I mean— these years, are, they're it's, fleeting. You blink and it's over. Yeah, but this isn't about common sense. This is about the central planners. And the IHSA is just another adjunct of the K-12 through government Politburo, which is why maybe this is something that would actually interest people. Why, why not have a transfer portal at the high school level? Why not? The point is, kids. Yeah, the point is, kids should play. This isn't a. This isn't you know big time. I understand the the high school sports very well, but this isn't big time college athletics. There's not all this cash at stake. There's some, but I mean, it's not. 
material in the way that it is at the collegiate level. There's no TV contracts and shoe deals and so on and so forth. I get there's a little bit of that stuff goes goes on, but it's very small. I'm just saying a transfer portal. I'm not saying paying and all this other stuff and boosters. Transfer portal. I mean, because otherwise you get these ridiculous decisions like this kid who has a hearing problem and he, he goes – and the recommendation of academics and doctors from one school to the other that's a better fit for him, and now you're not going to let him wrestle a senior season? Well, I just talked to Mike Scott in the break room, and he said that the principal and the athletic director didn't sign off on that yet. And that's at, why they're not letting But they should Downer, have signed off. At it. Downers? I mean, yes, at Downers. So as a coach, you have to go in with the athletic director and sign off on the papers, and then the principal has to sign off, and then they can go. Yeah, but but I mean that. But also, what, why? I, I mean, know, his I his know. academic counselor signed off on it. The uh, the audiologist from Lurie signed off on it. But mom and dad want it. I mean, he it, wants it too. Yeah, right? I mean that's this is that should wait, be enough. You, you have to layers. Everybody has to sign off because everybody's got to have their little fiefdom of power and weigh in on everything. That that's that, that's the whole point. This is a system centric system, not a family and kid centric system, and that needs to change. And maybe devolving power away from the system is a good idea. Gee, do you think? All right, let's uh, bring in Ted on this. Ted, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Hey, so I mean, you know, this is—I mean, we're talking about this in the context of sports, which probably interests people more than unfunded pension liabilities and superintendent salaries. But, but it's the—I mean, it, the, the, my my larger point is a point that you've been making for eons as well, which is it's just it's like everything is to protect the system. It's not to advance the interests of those financing the system. Ironically, the point, and it's it's hard to pick on individual things because. Uh bad they all contribute to the system failing and that's certainly the case for uh, brandon johnson moving the union move which is the f schools the selective enrollment schools and ps so it's uh, again protecting the system protecting the union power of course there ted you're, you're cutting it you're cutting in and out on us a little bit are you moving around is, is that now is ted? he cut out on us oh. all together now it's I think it's time for a new phone. Oh, there we go. There okay. we go. That's right. better. All right. Ted? 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 It's time for a new phone. And well, he, literally, he really he proved his point. He always provides the evidence. All right. Let's uh, effort to get Ted back on a line that we can hear him on. We'll be right back. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Do you have a home remodeling project you'd love to get done? This is your opportunity to lock in this year's pricing with Chicago's Design Build Dream Team. Forever Remodeling is now offering exceptional savings. Simply sign on by December 31st to avoid any price increases next year. At Forever Remodeling, their expert designers and installers will turn your dreams into reality. Act now and you'll not only protect yourself from future price increases, but also beat the rush and secure a preferred spot in their schedule. Call 847-809-3355 or visit foreverremodeling.com. Highly skilled to design and build. AM 560, the answer. All right, Dan and Amy, do we have Ted from Wirepoints back? Ted. I'm, I'm here. Let's see if my phone works. Okay. Um, anyway, we were just talking about uh, the uh, imperious nature of K-12 education in Illinois, centrally planned as it is, and that extends to sports, and you were responding. Yeah, and the, the system, you know, now it, now Brandon Johnson and the unions want to, 
you know, protect the system that is the uh, Chicago public schools by getting rid of enrollment, uh, selective enrollment schools, which, uh, which damage their, your white supremacy arguments. So, you know, get rid of high performing things and, and they can continue to blame whites. Well, and the um, Wall Street Journal actually has uh, taken up the uh, issue of the selective enrollment schools. I mean, again, it's no surprise to us. They, even though BLM Brandon said he wasn't going to go after them, we knew he was because that's the teachers union's posture. Um, Wall Street Journal pointing out that, for example, at Wall Street Journal editorial, uh, Bronzeville Classical Elementary School, a selective school on the south side, 73 percent of the students are black and 72 percent of the black students read at grade level which is about, I don't know, 5x the uh, number of black students reading at grade level system-wide in CPS, and he wants to stop that. Yeah, you know, we, we put out a list uh, yesterday, I think it was, of the high-performing schools. And, you know, you look at places like Keller Elementary Gifted Magnet School or Northside College Prep. You know, there, 96% of black kids read at grade level. 100% of Hispanics read at grade level. And, you know, we've been talking about how many of these schools only – five percent or seven percent you know this is where the top end performing you know blacks and hispanics are competing with the whites and the asians and um and not only do they do well dan and amy they excel so when you look at the test scores they don't just meet standards they excel they exceed standards so these are the kids that brandon johnson you know they're always out there promoting the the rappers and they're promoting the the great uh sport uh, sports athletes they should be promoting the hell out of these kids who can perform like that because they are they are the role models um, for for everybody. It doesn't matter what color you are. These are high performing kids, and you see these in the in all these top performing schools at seventy to eighty to ninety percent, close to hundred percent reading proficiency. My God, we should we should figure out how to replicate the hell out of that. You know, learn what's happening in those schools. Whether it's family values, parent dedication, uh, teacher dedication, it works. Um, well, how you know, do you and see that compares to the horrible schools out there. Right. Well, how do you see, I mean, how do, in five years from now, do you think people are going to flood into the neighborhoods of, you know, Northside Prep, Jones Prep, Whitney Young, so that they can go to that school? Because technically that's their neighborhood school. Or do you just see yeah, people think, moving you know, out? Yeah, I, I think this is just a continued segregation. You know, this is the most segregated some there is. Uh, you know, it's already 85% minority. If you want to selective enrollment schools you can see the more white flight and of course you'll see top black flight and top uh, flight be the uh the continued destruction of cps and, and you know what's left of it well right i mean those high performing uh, kids like at bronzeville uh, that bronzeville um, uh, selective enrollment school i mean they're making the other kids feel bad about themselves so we got to put stop to that i mean that's essentially the position of yeah. uh, brandon johnson the teachers union exactly what he says we can't we can't have these kids feeling bad but but the issue is is you know these lower performing schools and and those are all you know throughout the, the west and the south and you know throughout the city schools and we highlighted this in the piece there are schools where zero percent of whites and zero percent of blacks can read you got equity at the wrong end of the spectrum you have this wells community academy it's no whites can read at grade level children career can uh, academy and these are schools they're not uh, you know special schools uh that's kind of destruction on the other end that's i think more comfortable protecting that in the high-performing kids and the high-performing schools um we've uh 
been talking a little bit about um, die at the collegiate level in the wake of the uh, uh, disgraceful performances of uh, university presidents, particularly in the Ivy League, but not exclusively. I see that uh, you guys uh, over at wirepoints.org took a little look at the University of Illinois uh, college, uh, the University of Illinois system and Illinois colleges and universities when it comes to the expenditures of uh, the top die officials at these schools. Some eye-popping numbers, and of course we know this is just the top die official that says doesn't speak exactly. to the, the number and cost of the entire die bureaucracies at places like U of I. Um, Richard Mendenhall's alma mater. The uh, I see the U of I vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. His total comp is three hundred fifty grand. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. You know, so so the whole even even when there's this sort of uh, people see somewhat of a reckoning happening, whether it's the Supreme Court's decision in the Harvard admissions case or this discussion that's now happening because of uh, what's what we've seen after the October 7th a terrorist attack uh, in Gaza uh, on college campuses, particularly the elite campuses, you, 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 there still needs to be a recognition of how entrenched this has been allowed to get, including at the state schools. Yeah, exactly. You know, we can we can many of us can be really ticked off at what goes on at these universities. And like you said, what happened at Penn and Harvard, um, you know, showed us just how extreme these universities are, are being. And uh, this is significant cost what it, you know, with regard to what it does to our kids. Uh, but then there's the other cost, which is the fiscal cost. And uh, my colleague, Nick Bernardi, you know, our, our new addition at WirePoints, he, he was digging into this. And what we found is that it's really tough. You know, there's so many DEI type, um, with the, the nomenclature, that it's, it's hard to find all the employees because, you know, some of them are hidden in other departments and they, they use, use different names. And so coming up with a full picture is not easy. Uh, but but some of it's easy, and you can start to see how how expensive these people are. I mean, the fact that Sean Garrick has a total comp of three hundred fifty-two thousand at U of I, uh, you know, Northern Illinois two hundred fifty thousand for the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and chief diversity officer. You know, these are big numbers, and uh, if you start looking at the staffs, really big, and uh, you can imagine this is it's really like they got their tentacles throughout the system. Uh, we're gonna have to dig a little bit more to, to calculate the full costs. Ted Dabrowski, President of WirePoints, wirepoints.org, that is. Ted, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Oh, oh, oh. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we saw Paperboy Love Prince uh, participate in a recent presidential candidate forum in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm sure he was uh, seeking the coveted union leader endorsement. He's a uh, presidential candidate in the Democrat Party, I understand it. And uh, this is a, sort of a top line of his, uh, essentially, the main thrust of his candidacy. We need to spread love all across the world in a real way and take that very, very seriously. If you had war, I mean, some people, when they just hear shooting outside, they get afraid. And it's not a war. They're not coming for you. You, you get afraid. 
if there's an actual war on your soil, on your home, it's the most terrifying thing. But love, inspiration. I mean, if we actually tried that, if we put $800 billion into spreading love to folks, into supporting citizens in a way that starts to regenerate that love, because right now we're creating more terrorists. The more war, the more energy, the more hate, we're creating more terrorists, more people that are bloodthirsty for death and negativity. Why can't we create more people that want more love, that want more unity, that want more passion, that want to see us come together and create the future that we know is possible when we're living in our highest selves as people? Uh, Paperboy Love Prince uh, hails from Maryland, as I understand it. Maybe you know something about what happened in that Senate hearing room. Uh, He's a candidate for president who, quote, seamlessly blends the worlds of politics and artistry, unquote. Paperboy Love Prince joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. (laughs) Paper. It's our time. One love. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Just a note, by the way, I'm based out of Brooklyn, New York, and I use uh, they, them pronouns. So you're actually interviewing the first ever uh, non-binary candidate for president of the United States. Wow, we're making history. That's great. Um, Could you uh, just give us the backstory? Paperboy Love Prince. What's the uh, genesis of that name? I assume it's not your Christian name. (laughs) So... um, Thank you so much again, Dan and Amy. And um, basically the name comes from, you know, uh, the simplest version I can get. I was a paper boy who was crowned prince uh, because I spread a lot of love. So, you know, that's really where it comes from. And I was an artist. I still am an artist. Um, Did a lot of work in my community and, you know, did a lot of really groundbreaking things in the art world, kind of mind-bending things and we took that same energy to the political world. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where the name comes from. And I decided to use that actually when I was running for office as well to, you know, uh, have that be my name because so many folks in my community in New York here already knew me and in the D.C. area already knew me by that. So, um, so yeah. So are you going to be on the ballot as paper love, paper boy love prints? And are you going to? be on the ballot in some way or form yes so this will actually be my fifth time being on the ballot i've run for office in new york city uh for congress in 2020 as the first non-binary person to run for congress in 2020 then i ran for mayor in 2021 where we got 80,000 votes in new york city's first ranked choice voting election and i ran for congress again in 2022 um, and then and then city council this year in 2023. And so, um, yes, I will be on the ballot, not as a write-in, but on the ballot for office uh, in New Hampshire as uh, Paperboy Love Prince, and we're seeking ballot access in a few other states at this time. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, this will be the first time ever in New Hampshire and first time for president, but I will be on the ballot, and folks will have the opportunity to vote. In fact, when I signed up to be on the ballot back in October, it was the same day that Donald Trump signed up to be on the ballot in New Hampshire as well. So he was right there. He was in the room about 30 minutes right before me. And, um, yeah, so we went through the same process. So, yes, 
All right. And, and, and you're running as a Democrat, right? Yes, I'm running as a Democrat. Um, I, you know, and part of the reason behind that is I identify maybe more as an independent, but I'm, I'm sure as you all know, the two-party system, basically, they have so much power in every state. So the best way to kind of, um, you know, have a platform to speak out about that and try to change that is, unfortunately, through that system. So I'm running as a Democrat. How are um, you being received? I mean, are people taking you seriously? And what do, you, what do you mean by that? No, I mean, I mean, like, are you are you being received well? Are you getting support? Like, what are you hearing back from people that you want to vote for you? Yeah, so I mean, we've been able to reach a ton of people through my previous campaigns. So what this is is really building on top of that. You know, I've run for mayor largest city in the country and run for Congress in, um, in the large city in the country as well. So from that, we've had a lot of support all over in the South, in the West, overseas, in the Midwest, as well as, you know, in that Northeast corridor, like in New Hampshire and New York and Boston area. And um, folks are pretty excited about it. You know, right now I'm the youngest person running for president and I'm a person who speaks out against people who are like, oh, I'm young or I'm a, a woman or I'm Latino or I'm black and that's why I'm running. That's not what I'm, you know, hang my hat on. For me, it's about, okay, this is actually a really different wave of energy that's coming in. This is somebody who's coming in and kind of thumbing their nose at traditional politicians. This is somebody who's coming in and is speaking out against the system. This is somebody who's doing it, you know, and rejecting the system of um, big money in politics and calling out the folks who are funded by major PACs and funded by corporations and aren't actually of the people and speaking for the people. Who's calling out the system and saying, hey, you know, we don't have a democracy like you think we do. This representative democracy allows you to vote for somebody one time and then they make thousands of decisions throughout the week that you have no type of uh, stay on. So, like, people are receiving that really well because they're not expecting it. You know, when, when they actually get a chance to hear that message and hear what we stand for and see our policy platform and see the work that we've done over the years, they're like, wow, okay, this is somebody who got going right before the pandemic in the political world and then did not slow down and, and stepped up when the city needs them and the people need them the most. And that's what we need more of. And folks are always talking about young people getting more involved. They're talking about people caring more about their democracy, about their country. And when they do it in their own way, in a creative way, you know, folks are actually um, usually receive it pretty well. A lot of people now will say when I was in New Hampshire, you know, and we did the debate, there were some folks who I have pictures of it. They made funny faces or they were confused or they were, you know, pronouncing my name wrong over and over. I didn't understand. I used they, them pronouns. So we're stumbling over that. But well, you had a you had a sort of uh, striking outfit on. I saw uh, on C-SPAN. So maybe that was something that was a little surprising. You didn't uh, go with the traditional, you know, blue suit sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I got a different type of style, which yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people appreciate that as well, because so many folks, as you know, feel disenfranchised by our traditional political system. They're like, oh, man, like another person, like 
<clears throat> saying these same things, like, I'm done. Looking the same, sounding the same, I'm done. A lot of folks where I live, less than 4% of Democrats and Republicans show up to vote in our primaries. So, and, you know, the primaries in, in, like, these overly left cities, they end up choosing who will be the elector, you know, who will be elected. It's the primary. So, so few folks are showing up. So kind of what I do is I kind of, like, help to give a, sh- a shot of interest into this system. Can you uh, can you tell us more about this $800 billion plan you have to regenerate the love? Can you provide a little bit more context for that? Okay, for you. Yeah. So basically that, when I, that clip, and thank you all for using that. I love that because that one I was kind of speaking out of passion and off the cuff, which I, I really enjoy. That, um, that clip was basically in response to folks talking about our military budget. And so you're just going to repurpose the, the, the Pentagon budget to, to regenerate the love. Okay, but what does that look like? How do you regenerate the love? So one of the things that I talked about earlier was um, positive reinforcement. Right now, if you do something, if you go outside and you jaywalk or you, I don't know, um, you know, shoplift, right, you go to jail, you get a ticket or you get a fine. Some places. Some now, places yeah. you, hey, in some places, in some places, they let you go, right? But um, what I'm proposing is positive reinforcement. So it kind of combats that negative reinforcement. So the same way you get a fine if you do something negative, if you go and you see a bunch of trash in front of your local school and you pick up the trash and put it away and, and the school safety agent sees that, say, hey, hey, you're picking up trash? Hold up. I'm writing you a ticket, a love ticket. For a hundred dollars for doing stuff for you. Oh, I'd be exactly. rich. I'd be <laughs> all full of love. I pick up <laughs> garbage all the time. <laughs> Wait, where do you turn in the love tickets? Where do you turn them in? So, so that every every so like New York City would have a would have a federally funded love budget where you could go redeem your love tickets. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Basically, what that would do that would cut out so many other things. Because we wouldn't be able to even keep up with all the people doing positive in their community. Another thing that I announced in the debate, which I'm really excited about, and you mentioned that $800 billion, this would be a piece of that. This would cost more, but it would be to give a million Americans a million dollars every year that are doing something positive for their community throughout the year. And we'd have a system for folks to vote on it, and this would be another way to get folks more involved. But if you gave a million people a million dollars, one, that would be enough folks that folks feel like they actually, actually got a chance. That, hey, I might actually have a chance to get this. And it would be a life-changing amount of money for a lot of people. And what that would do is, okay, so you're a teacher that's, like, uh, inspiring students and helping folks and connecting parents and helping, you know, the community. Oh, you're a <clears throat> police officer that's helping out and and doing, finding new ways to solve crime. Okay, you know what? We're giving you a million dollars just to highlight the same way that we might do a Medal of Honor or a Purple Heart or something like that. We're doing that with cold, hard cash. And we're setting the standard to say, when you do something like this, you're spreading so much love that we want the world to know. And we want your bank account to show it and other folks to try to copy you. Because right now we have folks copying gangsters. We have folks copying... Um, 
people who are doing negative things. I, I don't want to take any specific shots at people, but we got folks copying people who maybe shouldn't be the leaders of our society. But if we found a way to shift the balance to the other side and said, hey, Amy, you're picking up trash. You know, Dan, you're out there talking to the community and giving back and telling them how they can have a career in radio. Here's a million dollars. We already know you're good, but here's a million dollars just to influence other people in your position to do the same thing. I think that government with that type of attitude, like, let's just try it and see where we go. So these are the type of ideas that, mm-hmm. that I'm bringing, the type of energy I'm bringing that I feel like we've never had. I mean, our president right now, is he's like one of the oldest presidents of all time, if I'm correct. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but you don't like, I mean, is there another reason why, What what is he doing wrong right now that inspired you to run? Besides his age. I'm be honest, we don't have the time um, on this show to list all of that. But what I will say is some of the main things that Biden is doing is, you know, one, the, a big part of it isn't his age, it's his attitude and his attitude towards the people. I mean, you know, he doesn't, have the, he doesn't have the love. He's not regenerating the love, is he? He doesn't have the love. I'm, I'm a black American, right? And he came on the radio with a, a breakfast club. I'm bringing this up because I'm on the radio right now. And, and he came on and he said, hey, if you're not black, if you don't vote for Biden. Yeah, I mean, he did the audacity of somebody to say that. Like, if Trump said that, if DeSantis said that, if um, Vivek said that, or one of these folks, that would be running nonstop, and we would be reminded of that every election. Biden, somehow they bury that, and folks don't even know that's something that was said. I was highly offended by that. I don't remember the um, apology for that, and it shows in his policy. He does things to kind of make it seem like he cares, like, oh, I'm going to have a, a black woman as vice president. Cool. Uh, okay, cool, but what are they actually doing to help the community at all? Like, folks don't know. They can't point to it. And if you look at how people feel, I mean, it's harder. I live in New York City. I'm sure it's similar in Chicago. It's harder than ever to be able to afford to rent an apartment for somebody just coming out of college. Yeah, maybe you you need to connect with that the, the rent is too damn high party guy from New York City. Do you know him? Remember him when he ran for mayor? You know what? I have some friends uh, with him. We met a long time ago before I was running for office when I was a, a young student in New York. I've run into him, and he's – He's, he's an example of how somebody who you think is small can make a lasting impact. We're still That's talking true. about That's the, true. That's true. Yeah, fair point. You know, you said you did, you've did. you done some mind-bending things in the art world. Um, have you ever run across Hunter Biden and his blow art? <laughs> he did have a show so in what? Soho. Yeah. Yeah, first-time artist. It's a pretty big deal. Wow. It's, you know it's the, the art world is abuzz with his blow art. About his blow art, you know? I don't know. I've, I've never seen Hunter Biden's uh, blow art, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, that it sounds like he's been very busy uh, yes. doing a lot of things. And Hunter Biden actually has a great strategy because he has so much crazy things going on and so many crazy news always coming up about Hunter Biden that it's hard to know what's true, what's not, you know? So. All right, uh, Paperboy Love Prince. He's a candidate for a president uh, of the United States. Uh, running as a Democrat, says he's going to be on the ballot. He was at that candidate forum at uh, St. Anselm's in uh, Manchester. 
seamlessly blending the worlds of politics and artistry. Paperboy Love Prince, uh, where can people follow your candidacy? <laughs> Paper, yeah. It's our time. You can follow me at Boy the Prince on Instagram or my website, paperboyprince.com. And, yeah, I'm, I'm all over there. So if you check out Paperboy Prince, I'm also on Twitter, but at paperboyloveprince on Instagram and paperboyprince.com. Yo, I, this has been great. Thank you all so much. I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. So Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Paperboy Love Prince, candidate for president. We appreciate it. I'll pay for you. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to keep doing that. I know. Oh, he will. Thank you so much. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I'm Molly Hemingway, right up at the Federalist, Federalist.com. You see her on Fox often. She was on Fox with Laura Ingram the other day talking about the lawsuit that uh, was filed by the Federalist, the Daily Wire, the state of Texas against the federal government, specifically the State Department, and the specific nature of the suit relates to the censorship industrial complex that is as it is becoming to be called, that has been well-documented with the Twitter files, with the uh, more recent uh, whistleblower information that was obtained by Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger that they've begun reporting on, this uh, cybersecurity operation that involved both the U.K. and U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, Here's Hemingway explaining... Uh, the basis of the lawsuit that uh, her outlet is a part of. Our lawsuit is against the State Department for funding, promoting, marketing, and testing hundreds of censorship tools. The State Department actually put together a platform where they told government and military sources and educational institutions to come check out these hundreds of censorship tools. And again, NewsGuard and GDI are just two of the hundreds of these things. But it is also true that NewsGuard and GDI have received funding. There, there are lots of different federal agencies that have funded or helped helped launch these various censorship technologies. It's not just the State Department. It's also the Pentagon. It's also the Department of Homeland Security. I think Americans would be really horrified to know how much of their taxpayer dollars have, have gone into not just helping launch some of these things, but also helping market, promote, and work with them. I mean, there's a reason why this censorship has been so effective. And it's not, you know, it's not any one thing, but there are lots of these companies, organizations, for-profit companies, and federal government agencies that are working together. And this goes back to the Election Integrity Project that was stood up after 2016 to prevent 2016 from ever happening again. And this is uh, run through Stanford University. We've talked about this quite a bit, and we're going to continue to as this develops. Um, But just to refresh, uh, Stanford University, organizations like the Atlantic Council and a couple of others, all receiving government funding. This was exposed in the reporting on the Twitter files, thanks to Elon Musk's disclosure, which was then uh, put out for public consumption by Taibbi Schellenberger and a couple other journalists that he selected to do the report to, to get the information so they could do the reporting on this. And remember, 
Um, he smartly sele- selected uh, journalists like Schellenberger and Taibbi because they're men of the left, not Trump supporters. Uh, and uh, so you hear Molly Hemingway mention GDI, which is a global disinformation index, and NewsGuard, which is another uh, private organization that's now uh, that's that's in, uh, among whose board members include the former DHS secretary Tom Ridge, former DNI General Michael Hayden. And this is the evolution of the censorship industrial complex to take it out of direct government funding and to set up these cutouts so that they can do with the social media platforms what the government cannot direct them to do as they're anticipating an adverse ruling in the Missouri v. Biden case that relates to government directing third parties to do what it cannot do, which is censor Americans' speech, violate the First Amendment rights of the American people. And uh, again, just to refresh recollections, this was Mike Benz, who's a former cybersecurity uh, uh, staffer at the State Department, just last month talking about the censorship complexes, censorship industrial complexes restructuring in anticipation of 2024. The way the censorship industry is currently being restructured in anticipation of a devastating Missouri v. Biden ruling is to do a sort of middle out restructuring, whereas instead of having things run out of CISA at the DHS or, or, uh, or the State Department's Global Engagement Center, it would be run out of a, what, they, what they're calling a middleware company, uh, a, a censorship service provider who sits in the middle between the user and the platform, but is intermediated by essentially intelligence agency and government and major government figures who inform that middleware censorship companies policies and filtering mechanisms. So NewsGuard is an example of this. NewsGuard, of course, has Rick Stengel on its board, who ran the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. Anders Fogh Grasmussen, who was the, the head of NATO for five years in the Obama administration. Tom Ridge, the former head of DHS. And General Michael V. Hayden, who was a former four-star general, head of the NSA and head of the CIA. So that's who's in control, essentially, of the middleware censorship provider who is now also doing censorship compliance for this new European Digital Services Act. They're trying to get congressional regulations to mandate middleware so that it looks like it's coming from the private sector when indeed it's again being intermediated by these intelligence cutouts. Uh, And I did a a deep dive with Mike Benz uh, a couple episodes back on my counterculture podcast if you want to check that out because it's really interesting in terms of what has transpired and what is afoot. Uh, counterculture podcast you can get at uh, American Greatness as well as on the platform Spotify and Apple and so forth. For more on this and other uh, domestic as well as geopolitical matters, please be joined by Martin Gurry, a former CIA analyst, presently a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's also the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. The revolt of the public and the crisis of authority in the new millennium. That's uh, topical, uh, considering what uh, we're increasingly understanding the intelligence agencies, our own federal government is doing to us 
uh, as uh, outlined in the suit uh, that Molly Hemingway described, as well as um, what Michael Benz, what Michael Schellenberger, what Matt Taibbi have been reporting on. Um, what, what, what is your reaction to the, the operation of these national security and intel agencies, particularly in the direction of, of free expression in this country? Because, I mean, you, you don't have confidence in any institution or the outcome of elections, you don't have free and fair elections if you have a government stifling people's expression. Well, I mean, I am not a young man, and I cannot, I mean, I, I, can't, I have trouble conceiving how we, how we got to this place. Um, in most of my very long life, if somebody got accused of saying, of uh, suppressing speech, the answer would be, no, 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 you're wrong. Look at it this way. I'm not suppressing it. The answer today is, hell yes, we're suppressing it, and we should be suppressing it. And and I guess the frightening thing is that there is a considerable portion of the American public, I don't think it ever rises to a majority, thank goodness, but a considerable portion that agrees with that. It says, yeah, we need truth, and of course, truth is defined a certain way, and we need and we need institutions that protect us from lies, and those are also defined a certain way. And of course, that is completely contrary to the spirit of uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the man who decided this issue when, when way back when, when he beat John Adams, and said, you know, the truth and, and falsehood can be decided by the public. Uh, the truth will win out if, if it's allowed. You know, fair fight. Um, so I, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I'm uh, very much in touch with both uh, Taibbi and, and Schellenberger. They're, they're sort of intellectual friends of mine. And the stuff they have turned up is, and I've worked in the U.S. government, okay, so I, I, to me, this is, it, uh, I was a, a CIA guy. Uh, to me, this is inconceivable. It, it just, uh, it leaves me stammering, as you can tell. Well, I mean, can you, do, do you have a perspective on sort of pinpointing a break? where these uh, agencies and the heads of these agencies decided that uh, what they have done was the right and proper thing to do? Well, I mean, I mean, you have to go back to the, the story I tell in the book, which is long before even Trump, because of structural changes in our information environment, there had been this huge break between the elites that have traditionally run our institutions and have done so you know, since the, uh, the industrial age of the 20th century, um, and, and the rest of us, the public. And, and, and increasingly, the public had access to information, had a voice in, uh, over the web, of course, and was voicing its frustration, its anger, its lack of trust. Um, so that begins before uh, any, any actual political event. I think the election of Donald Trump then, of course, was uh, just a decisive event. They, they, to this day, cannot accept the fact that people could have voted for him. Um, and I, I'm not a Trump fan. I'm speaking strictly as an analyst. But mm -hmm. I can tell you, people cannot accept that, uh, the elites cannot accept that people voted for him fair and square. There had to be some sort of weird conspiracy. Lies had to be propagated. Fake news had to rule the waves. Um, and to this day, um, they feel like they have to somehow protect themselves against that. Um, and so, I mean, it, it just seems to me, um, sort of boiling this down, 
that uh, they cloak themselves as the vanguard of our representative republic. They're always saving democracy. And their perspective, much like the um, eco-supremacists want to save the planet from the people, they want to save our republic from the people. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, and it's called, they call it our democracy. I always find it fascinating how, how possessive they are, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, a good point. Our democracy, which is, you know, the, the old days of the Cosa Nostra, our thing, you know, it's a bit of a mafia. Uh, and and uh, I, uh, I think they haven't quite gotten to the point where they realize that democracy means sometimes they lose. I think our democracy is uh, is legitimized in their minds by its superior virtue. So, and of course, uh, the, the alternative, which is Trump, is, is delegitimized by the fact that it's lies and, and authoritarianism. So you can't ever lose an election. You can't ever lose an election because that would be the end of our democracy. So they have come to the point where, you know, I mean, I, I was born in Cuba and I don't want to make stretched parallels, but, you know, the Communist Party, you can't ever not be in charge because otherwise... Bad people take over and do bad things. And so this is a story as old as uh, mankind, which is that we now have a political ruling class that uh, that operates under the um, philosophy that the ends justify the means. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's what those polls tell you that people and people say, sure, we need the government to intervene in uh, you know social media and the public sphere to make sure that we get truth. So truth, as defined by certain political standards, uh, then becomes the, 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 the end that we seek and whatever means are available. And of course, the, the, um, that bizarre um, censorship, I call it the new censorship, the bizarre censorship apparatus that was erected, starting with Trump being president, by the way, all this happened behind the president's back. And then, of course, it just took off uh, once once Biden uh, got into the White House um, is to me the most I'm sitting as I did at CIA where to be political was death. You got fired. right? You could not be political um, to where we are today. It, it's it's amazing. It's inconceivable. I don't see how you you can see you can't see that. Going from there to where we are now uh, is is only going to accelerate this lack of trust in our institutions to almost a nihilistic point of view. So it'll never go back to the way it was when you were there. Well, I'm optimistic. You know what? I'm always, I, I, again, coming being an immigrant. I feel like the American people, which is having sort of a psychotic episode right now, <laughs> is normally historically sensible. And I think I, I hope and I, I believe that at some point we'll get uh, our senses back. But you know, this is a struggle. I guess this is this is we have to fight against uh, this anomaly in our, our historical way of looking at, at information and looking at, at freedom. Uh, and uh, you know, we each have to do our little bit that we can, uh, and who we vote for, what we write, what we say, how we say it, uh, to make sure that we we somehow resume. This feeling that, you know, I may not agree with what you're saying, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. I mean, this is an old, an old hackneyed statement, but it is the way it has been in this country forever. Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst, presently a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. 
Martin Gurry, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's morning answer. Panel's coming to town. Oh, my God. On AM 560. Santa here? I know him. The answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.